welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me as always, I'm delighted to say, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Hello, Neil. Where have you been all this time? I don't know. It's been such a long time. There's so much to catch you up on. I can't even begin to think <laughs> but where I'm going to start. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny. We're trying to think of what, what's the uh, what's the latest news since the 15 seconds I spoke to you a, a, a minute ago. That's podcasting screen with your time, the, you know, your, your understanding of time there. Yeah, sure. If you haven't been along to the other episode, but, um, you've got no idea what's going on right yeah. now. So, yeah, so apologies there if you haven't listened to the uh, this, the, the first of this doubleheader and our little kind of meta in-joking is just going uh, over your head. Um, but it's a, it's a reason to um, to, to pick up the other episode uh, if there wasn't one before. So, yeah, we are, we are back. We are still in the same seats. We are recording this straight after recording intro for the other the other episode that's just been released dario uh, anything to share with us before we get into the meat of it yeah it's been interesting the sort of first few sessions that i've had with the students in our monday night screenings so we screened pablo lorraine's tony monero a couple of weeks ago and that nice. did not go down well at all which i was quite shocked at really but i think that this group of students found it very difficult because mm. they couldn't identify with the character. And I just yeah. found it really interesting because back when we screened it with James, I, I remember he he hosted that with you. Yeah, he did. Down yeah. at Falmouth. It got, a, it got a very... I mean, I suppose positive isn't, isn't potentially the right word, but it got a kind of like, yeah, this is a really interesting film kind of reaction. Whereas this, this time around, it got a... Well... I, I can't understand anything about this character or this world kind of reaction. Therefore, it's a bad film. And yeah. I mean, I, th- I think once we started to talk about it, we we began to sort of unpack what it what it was about because I don't think that there many of the students sort of understood. And and to be honest, it's not a film to, to, that you can kind of nail down and say, oh, it's definitely about about this. What's interesting is that the following week we showed a film called A Coffee in Berlin, which was very much more a kind of Linklater esque wandering around berlin you know thinking about existential crisis of a male character shot in black and white and quite introspective and they 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 very much got on a lot better with that mm. and i was surprised because i didn't think that i didn't think it was great i thought it was okay but it it's just fascinating to me i think maybe in the years since we've been running this podcast and obviously we run this podcast aligning it with our day-to-day jobs as tutors in film courses just how much film sensibilities have changed, probably because of social reasons like COVID and, you know, sort of changing mores around what is what pe- what young people find interesting and acceptable. But also, again, the sort of psychology of the experience that students have themselves and that, that idea of how do we, how do we see, how do you see yourself and how do you see yourself in relation to the world? Um, and again, I didn't want to sort of start this off getting very sort of philosophically profound, but it was just it was just interesting to me the big difference between those two cohort groups, some what eight years apart. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think in terms of well, the, you know, the, the the film that we're going to talk about today, you know, I think that there is much in the story of uh, you know sort of the subject of that film that is in the conversation for sort of younger generations. But they're probably not aware of of them, their story, their kind of impact in a wider sense, uh, culturally and socially outside of outside of movies. And that kind of shift, I think, is is really important to note. You know, in terms of 
how we present this these conversations and and when we're sort of teaching how we present that work you know how we how we present the context um and i think as well like when when to sort of stand behind something and say this is important this is relevant this is necessary in terms of trying to cultivate a wider understanding of of cinema and and kind of the art form and that so i think that that's really interesting that there was that kind of you know resistance but like you say once you once you start thinking about it it, it makes a lot of sense the idea that a film should be challenging and ambiguous and put yourself in a kind of transgressive space in terms of how you identify and who you identify with i think is is something which is really important to talk about it's something i talk about a lot in my screenwriting you know in terms of like why cinema yeah. matters but is increasingly not something that seems to be to be kind of at the forefront of conversation it seems like you know there is a kind of a very quiet acceptance that films have to be kind of very morally clear very you know protagonists have to be very clear and and that just isn't interesting for me in cinema because it's not really true to life anyway even though we would will it to be a lot of the time yeah i mean i think you hit the nail on the head sort of separating off from cinema specifically though that idea of the lack of comfort with transgression or mm. probably more accurately the the unwillingness to to sit in a dis, uh, an uncomfortable situation and and i think that that bears out as well sort of with the culture of students in universities which is m- much more difficult to manage in terms of conflict i think and and students struggling for for lots of reasons you know it's it's like i'm not blaming blaming them in any way but it's kind of like interesting how we ha- we are in a different time i think and and I think one of the things that 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 universities struggle with, on a political sense as well, because it can be pushed into a a kind of problematic direction, particularly mm. when it comes to right wing politics. When you do want to be somebody who advocates for a very very healthy, very strong freedom of speech, but also a freedom to put things in front of students that they they won't have seen and maybe they're not going to like mm. and see what the reaction is. But I think there's yeah. a reticence to do that now for for a lot of reasons, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, cinema should be a safe space for experiencing and engaging with discomfort. You know, like it's not. It is. It's a. It's. It's an art form. It's a story space. A lot. You know, or or, or a, even even in a kind of documentary sense, like it's it's storytelling. It's the and obviously experimental film is is different. So, but it's all about experiencing discomfort or experiencing challenge or seeing an, a different worldview and kind of developing your thinking and feeling around things. And I I worry that. You know, in all these conversations we have around cinema versus streaming, or you know that what is actually lost is something which is kind of fundamental to what makes it such an important art form in terms of what it can do for an audience, in terms of empathy, and in terms of engaging with different ideas in a in a kind of thrilling and and sort of aesthetically challenging way. For sure, absolutely well said. So yeah, today's episode it kind of links a little bit to that in terms of if you think of the the sort of way the character that we're discussing, and I use character advisedly here, and that is Rock Hudson. The, uh, I mean, I think I'm right, Neil, in saying that he would have been in the 1950s probably the biggest male lead in in Hollywood. Would you agree with that? Certainly up there. I mean, I, I think that, yeah, in terms of his work in, you know, the Douglas Sirk films, I think certainly one of the biggest pin-up male icons of the era. Because I guess it's, you know, Gable's still around, but not at his height. Cary Grant maybe would be a challenger in yeah. the 50s. But I think he's definitely top tier, you know. And I think one of the things yeah. the film does really well is remind 
is remind just how top tier he was in terms of that work with Douglas Sirk and then later yeah, the Doris yeah. Day movies. Sure. So the film's called Rock Hudson, All That Heaven Allowed, directed by Stephen Kayer, who I was lucky enough to interview about the film. It's coming out um, on streaming um, on the 23rd. So depending when you've, you've listened to this, it may already be out. But he was very generous, gave us a lot of time to discuss the film. And I think it's a really interesting documentary in the sense of he's a filmmaker who's a very seasoned documentarian. And I know that, Neil, you've um, watched a few of his music documentaries particularly. And he's got a clear sensibility, I think, in this film coming coming particularly, I think, from the idea of shooting from a using a kind of queer gaze or a queer mindset, I think, a queer kind of representative approach. Again, if I'm trying, if I'm being even more pretentious, to an icon who clearly, you know, I mean, anybody listening to this this podcast will will understand the the history of Rock Hudson and the idea that he was sort of the embodiment of American masculinity to many film goers, yet was part of a very active gay underground community um, in the fifties, sixties, and I think. What's interesting about this film is it really does focus on his activity and his identity within that community. And it, it it kind of flips around, I think, many of the ways that a regular straight document documentary might conceivably represent his behavior. So, you know, it doesn't this documentary doesn't use words like promiscuity or anything like that. And there is very definitely a reflection on from the people who knew him, because there's lots of talking heads in this film, regarding how much many of these guys were basically in love with with Rock Hudson, and obviously it does get into later on in his life when he when he, he shifts into being a TV star, and obviously there's the links to republicanism, which are highly contradictory when you you know when you think about what happened to him in in the 80s and how he became probably the most high profile. Victim maybe is the 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 right word of of the AIDS crisis in terms of being somebody who was both outed as having AIDS and then having to kind of you know reveal to many people who didn't know that he he you know he was gay all along. So it's a really interesting film, I think, from both a, a formal and a kind of content perspective. And even though I don't think Stephen would mind me saying that that it is a kind of classic classically constructed documentary in 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 that way and you can see that this is somebody who knows how to make a classically constructed documentary for sure yeah it's a it's a really interesting film and i look forward to to talking about that and uh, and your conversation with Stephen. yeah so it was really really fantastic conversation and yeah i think you've set it up really nicely there so let's go to that now this is dario talking to Stephen kayak the director of rock hudson all that heaven allowed Based on votes of moviegoers all over the nation, most popular actor of the year. Rock Hudson. Rock Hudson. Rock Hudson. Rock Hudson. Actor Rock Hudson. Pleased to make your acquaintance, man. The Rock was an icon. He was by far the biggest star in Hollywood. Not only did women say, that's the man I want to marry, many men said, that's the man I'd like to be. He had more than one world. He had the studio world. He had this gay world. If the truth had come out, that would have been the end of his career. It's as simple as that. Oh, you. Hiding in closets isn't going to cure you. 
Rock is the last of those manufactured stars where every aspect of what we think to be their private life has been built by other people. You are divine. I know, but I'm in training. <laughs> we were ordered never to have our picture taken together because somebody would know that we were gay. People loved him. He was just a decent, wonderful guy. I love the the opening quote of the film. So, you know, this friend of Hudson, they're, they're talking about being gay in Hollywood and part of the, what we call now probably a sub, subculture. And he asks him, how did you know you were going to make it? And he, he tells this story, you know, of this, uh, of this dream that he had a perfectly cut diamond sitting on a velvet room lips, as, as the guy tells the story, pointing to the center of this diamond. He said, that diamond is me. That's how I know I'm going to be a star. So I just wondered when you, when you heard that, did that immediately offer you an in into the story, and how do you how did you sort of read that that dream? Yeah, it's it it's interesting. It, it's actually the last anecdote in the biography, "All That Heaven Allows." That we we worked very closely with the author of the book, and sure. that's the last story in the book. And I just thought, oh, that's the beginning of the movie. That's perfect. You yeah. know, um, who doesn't want to start with a dream? I mean, the whole film is kind of about the dream factory, the fantasy uh, of becoming a star and all that. So, yeah, and luckily the man who told it himself was an, a young actor, so he, he re-performed it for us. Perfectly, yeah, you know. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's just perfect because it's completely ridiculous. Do you know what I mean? What young man in Winnetka, Illinois, is, is you know, growing up on farmland, whatever, is just is dreaming of a diamond on a velvet pillow? Are you kidding? <laughs> But it's a great story, and if yeah. it is the slightest bit true, you know, it's just one of those great sort of destiny images. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah. It's got many facets. It's impenetrable, uh, much like the Rock Hudson persona itself. When you try to get below the surface, there's really nothing there, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. We may find that it's very reflective, mm. and it's very beautiful and very valuable. Um it just kind of has it all. I mean, I, I don't know. I love starting with a dream. And it tells us something about, I think, maybe the way that stars have to justify to themselves why they're stars. It's kind of like, well, this was transcendent. This was something to do with faith. It's beyond my control. You know what I mean? I, I just, I'm one of the chosen people in a way, you know? Yeah. I'm, but the irony is that there is a little bit of that to his story. Yeah. Um, he seemed to also, we, we don't really touch on this in the film, but if you'll read other things, and there's another great uh, study of Rock Hudson, a film study of him called Rock Hudson's Home Movies, right, oh. by Mark Rappaport, yeah. early 90s, slightly experimental essay film, in which he really does start with that image that the young Rock Hudson saw in a movie theater when he was a young man. Now I'm going to go and forget the name of the actor, but it was, you know, the famous scene of this man, dive, uh, you know, shirtless man in little swim trunks diving off a a ship into the ocean and he just thought ah oh, not only probably wow sexy right yeah, hot of course but i want to do that too sure. that looks like fun then he finds out years later that it was a stunt man and not the actual actor but i i find the diamond image a lot more in intriguing sure. as a way in you know yeah 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 just reading your sort of uh filmography your back catalog you've done a lot of documentaries and Stardom, I think, is something that, that seems to be interesting to you. 
and uh, and my, my colleague has just actually finished writing a book on music documentaries so he's he's watched all of your films he particularly likes the scott walker ah that's, film that's the passion project yeah yeah indeed indeed and i just watched the the judy garland film the other night which i think has some parallels here you know Completely. in structure and yeah. and you know and the sort of subject area but i just wonder with this project with rock hudson you know did this did this come to you as a project from the outside or was was rock hudson somebody that you were kind of interested in historically so most of them come at me, right? Um, and then we just assess, you know, is there a story here? You know, I always ask myself, you know, where can I put myself into this, and mm. how does this expand my greater project, if you will? And uh, it was just perfect timing, you know. Um, I had done a lot of music stuff, music-oriented documentaries, but had taken a bit of a turn to dig into LGBTQ stories with Equal, which is a, a doc series I did for HBO Max. And, you know, I hadn't really focused on queer narratives in the past for some years, and it just felt like another great opportunity to keep telling slightly more important stories, uh, because obviously the Rock Hudson story runs headlong into the early days of the AIDS crisis. Yeah. So it's kind of got it all. And it, and it seems as though, as well, the, you know, it's very much the film is anchored on um, interviews with people who knew Rock Hudson, in fact, you know, were lovers of Rock Hudson, and... It seemed in the tone of the way that you spoke to him or the, or the way that they articulated their their relationship to him, there was a, a, a sort of real desire, almost from a sense of, oh, we've never had a chance to talk about this. And because it was so closeted back in the time, this is this is a great chance to, to kind of even get in touch with our own sense of what happened back then. No, it's true. I mean, the idea, you know, I, I didn't want to just line up a bunch of famous talking heads. I mean, none of them are alive anymore. It was very hard to to find that kind of collection of commentary. No, the po- the point was to really, you know, create an intimate portrait of him through people that knew him. You'll see we only ever really film these other gay men who were in, in his life, some very intimately, and they create a generational portrait too. Mm-hmm. You know, you go from the pre-Stonewall days with Lee Garlington, his boyfriend from 1963 to the other side of the AIDS crisis, all the way from co-stars to friends, uh, landing at um, Peter Kavoyan, this lovely young actor who co-starred with him on the last season of Macmillan, you know, as his TV career is sputtering out, but he had a lasting impact on his life. Um, Yeah, it, it, it was a way to kind of get under that kind of celebrity, the tone of celebrity and examining celebrity through experts and all that. Granted, I have some great filmmakers and experts. Particularly like Alison Anders, who's a great great fan of her. Uh, But like, I wanted it just to be friends, pals, and lovers. I just think it's, I hadn't quite seen that approach, and we made sure to be very specific about doing that. And there there are some sort of diary entries as well, and I think that that's really interesting to me because it does go back to the Judy Garland documentary because that's very much a sort of memoir in a way. And, and I just wondered what that offers in terms of, we tend to think maybe that documentary as a form presents a sort of objective historical record, but obviously now in the digital age, that's open more to, to, to question and that sense of the, the subjective impressions of, that, that people have kind of build up a picture. Because even with this, with this documentary, you do get a sense that nobody really knew the true Rock Hudson, you know? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, the those closest to him, the diary entries you're speaking about, I mean, in a way, they're 
you know, it's they're the diary entries of George Nader, who, like the men who are in the film, was one of Rock's closest friends. Uh, George Nader and his lover Mark Miller, who had been together for decades. I mean, they met. They all met when before Rock was really famous. George himself was a bit of a matinee idol who just never really took off in the way Rock did. George was a fastidious diary keeper. And again, you know, it's about witnessing. You know, how inside can we get into this story? And you don't get much closer than Mark and George. And what was most valuable about the Nader Diaries, granted, we only had excerpts that were excerpted in an unpublished memoir by Mark Miller. I mean, it's so ridiculous, but we have these great arcs or chunks of the Nader Diaries especially where it pertains to the AIDS story. Sure. Because he really start yeah. drilling down and keeping detail in 84, 85. Yeah. It's like what I liked also with these guys, and you mentioned tone. There's a very queer point of view, very gay point of view to the telling on purpose. Sure. You know, we're using the parlance of camp, of gossip. Um, it's a little cheeky. It's sexy, sexual. This is how we talk. We gossip and we dish and we spill the tea or whatever. I mean, it's it's kind of part of the way that they all were with each other, rock included. So that, again, kind of informed how it all sort of landed. Within those sort of early relationships, you know, and he comes to the comes to Hollywood and, you know, is searching for a kind of inn and has this uh, this early boyfriend, Ken Hodge, who does provide kind of contacts, it seems. But then when he meets the... The manager, um, Henry. Henry Wilson, it, it seems he has no problem in kind of dumping this guy because suddenly, you know, here's a better opportunity and there's a big manager who wants to not only be with him, who actually is going to help him to get into big movies. And there's a sort of ruthless streak there, which is really interesting, I think. Yeah, completely. I mean, you know, he was very determined. It's funny when you go through it, like the story and the research and you read all the different books everyone kind of has a different telling of it. And I think it's been told in different ways. There is the classic, like, oh, he was a truck driver and he would just park the truck outside of the studios and just, like, hang out, hoping <laughs> someone would come out and so, go, Notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, let's give him a contract. Um, he says he sent his picture around on the advice of Ken Hodge and only one person answered. The the truth is more likely that Ken brought him to a party, a yep. bunch of Hollywood gays, and Henry Wilson laid eyes on him and was like, that is for me. And Rock was knew who he was, and, yep. you know, he's ambitious. He's not going to go back to Winnetka, tail between legs. He's going to make it, you know? And and he renames him from Roy Fitzgerald to, yeah. what a name. Roy, <laughs> yeah, Roy, well, it was Roy Shearer by birth. He yep. adopted, his father leaves, his mother remarries a man named Fitzgerald who adopts Rock. So we now have Roy Fitzgerald who comes to Hollywood and becomes a Rock Hudson. I mean, Henry was mm. the notorious, we call him the manizer, you know. There's a womanizer and Henry was the manizer. He really just scooped up every hot young actor who fell off the hay truck and gave them a crazy name and yeah. tried to make them famous um, while probably having sex with them in the process. It was all very transactional. Henry was a strange little man, and um, but very, very powerful in his, in his day. Yeah, yeah. And Rock really is his greatest creation. Oh, no, without a doubt. And there was a whole raft of uh, other actors who'd, who'd kind of God, yeah. were in and out and then suddenly, but, but he found yeah. the actual one that, that worked. Either. Yeah. I mean, he did, you know, he was behind Tab Hunter, yeah. another great success. Um, 
Rory Calhoun, I think, was one of his. That might actually be Rory's real name. But it gets to the, by the tail end, he's got, well, who, he tries to use the name Chance three or four times, and he lands on this Chance Nesbitt, which was a complete disaster. I think every time he'd call the office, the secretary would say, Henry, it's your last chance. Yeah. You know, but um, bum just like, he just kept applying the formula, and it worked a few times. Yeah. Big time. And Wilson's kind of like a, maybe a sort of Tom Parker f- type figure in a way, you know, and, and right up until late on his career, he's still sort of controlling. And it seems that even if he, were, he ended up being his own man, he still, by osmosis, had that attitude of staying within the formula that Wilson had created right up to the very end, nearly. You know? He really did. I mean, it was a combination of that and the fact that he was a creation of the studio system or product of the studio system, right? I mean, we don't really have it to that degree today where you're everything is done for you and to you and every choice you make is not your own. I mean, every script is, you know, he has to do what they tell him. Yeah. You know, taking these rare options to like, you know, I mean, Giant, for example, it's a loan out to another studio. He had to fight so hard for that, you know, and he missed out on things uh, because there were maybe more prestigious movies being made at other studios at the time. Yeah. You know, um, I think he was wanted Ben-Hur at one point. Or, right, right. You know, and he would get bad advice too. Henry was not always spot on, but Rock, and uh, sadly we don't really create the time to get into this, but I think there is a uh, a pattern of his his success through relationships with father figures. His, yeah, yeah. He yeah. was abandoned. His stepfather was abusive. Um and, you know, he really finds success with Henry, with uh, Raoul Walsh, the director, gives him his first big chance. And then you see a pattern of, like, when he's great, it's with these really strong senior titans yeah. of old Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. You know, like Douglas Sirk and George Stevens. And, of course, Frankenheimer. Yeah. 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 It's so interesting as well, the way that his emergence and then superstardom also coincides as you sort of uh, allude to in the in the in the piece or, or explain in the piece that there was a sort of ch- a, a shifting sense of what acceptable masculinity would be through Hollywood. So that kind of Rudolph Val- Valentino effeminate, um, more vulnerable type was really on the wane, and maybe there was something to do with the return back from the war and America trying to sort of re-establish its sort of cultural identity and he fit the bill really for this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. Dandies were out, hunks were in. It was just cultural images, right? I mean, you're the imagery uh, that the public is being saturated with at the time were images of, of men at war or coming home from war and the propaganda posters, you know, some of which are very funny, you know, very phallic loadings of cannons and whatnot yeah, yeah. um but there are all these hyper masculine images and uh there are heroes right they become they win the war they they come home as conquering heroes so that image becomes very important uh to hollywood as they're looking for leading men uh to become the next generation of you know of yeah. movie stars and Rock had it all, but he also, it's funny because you look at them, like you look at him and like you wonder why did George Nader not make it? George is very handsome, yeah, yeah. very chiseled, but maybe yeah. too much so. And he's mm. he's 
darker and he's got a, like a heavy brow and maybe he's like a little Italian looking or something. I mean, I yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, George yeah. has got a very specific look, almost like he could almost slot into like gangster character actor. Kind of. He actually, he ends up becoming quite well known in Europe playing like a, a James Bond knockoff right. kind of character. Um, but Rock just, he was just a little bit soft around the edges. He was yeah, empowering. Yeah. A hunk of man, right? He was huge, over six five, I think, but just a little bit soft. There was like you know a little baby fat. Yeah, um, everything was kind of. He was just the gentle giant. Yeah, right? and he just fit right into that epoch perfectly. Yeah, and the sort of process of being Rock Hudson was a very constructed, a very it took it so much time. It seemed to perfect the voice because that I mean it's one thing again that that, that you you probably had. Stuff that you had to cut out because it's such a great voice to match up with that 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 body and that face. But he he literally learned how to be Rock Hudson under the tutelage of the manager. But then you know going through you know acting lessons and voice lessons. But it wasn't just about. I love that section where it talks about the screen magnifies any little effeminate gesture and stuff. So that had to be kind of cut out entirely. Yes, yes. I mean it's it's terribly homophobic, isn't it? I mean oh, Henry no. Wilson, gay man who's like. His 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 method is just to make sure he butches these guys up. I mean, many of them were actually straight men. Yeah. But there was a hyper masculinization going on. Um and he was a grooming school. He did give these country bumpkins lessons on how to dress and, you know, how to do their hair, all of that you we explore in the film. Mm. Um you know, there is the legend. Some of these things they, they, they get repeated so many times you just think, you know, really? But you know, where it is, rock, there was like a slight lilt to his voice mm. um, that had to be trained out. Yeah, yeah, it was the classic kind of like smoke some cigarettes, take a drive on a cold night with the top down and just shout. Yeah. Scream. Yeah. Uh, like it's the Loren Bacall thing. Like, like just, they break the voice to give it a little bit more of a rasp. His just kind of got knocked down a few pegs. Um, but it is interesting in earlier photos, you know, when he really go smiles, he has a really goofy, toothy <laughs> smile, and you just think, oh god, yeah, like yeah, they, yeah. they let a few loose, you know, you yeah. can kind of see the cracks sure. in, in it before he's completely perfected it. Yeah, yeah. Even going back through the the sort of uh, the history of, you know, what you might sort of broadly call gay iconography, it seems that even even back then there was that 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 dividing line between between what we'd call sort of hyper heterosexuality and that tipping over into what is just plainly obviously gay imagery is so fine you know what I well mean? yeah i mean it was also the yeah it was the, well they called him the the baron of beefcake <laughs> and you know at that time you also have the rise of the physique magazines which were sly ways for gay men to get their hands on you know images of barely clad men um so there was all of that going on as well um yeah, like the, it was the era of the beefcake that had not really been mm. fully realized in culture until that time. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. The imagery. Yeah. And this is long, you know, decades before Jean-Paul Gaultier, for example. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but during the period that he's he's up and coming, let's say, and he's um, the, the the producer is putting him in what you term in the in the uh, in the documentary, just kind of like B adventure movies, but then. He gets cast in Magnificent Obsession, which is probably the you know the big breakout film. But even before that, he was in a film called Any Has Anybody Seen My Gal, which is a, a Cirque movie, which isn't a very good film, and not you know not a very good Cirque film. 
the producer and Cirque must have recognized something in him to put him in a, in this movie, which had much more of a, you know, obviously it was a romantic lead and that's what he became famous for in the Cirque melodramas. But there's also a kind of, you know, an undertone of critique of American culture, a sort of satirical element to those films. So, yeah, I just wondered for you what, what, what you think he sort of brings to those, that to that era of Cirque melodramas. Well, it's complete solidity, isn't it? I mean, he's like an immovable object. Mm. He's, uh, I don't know, he changes as much as everything changes around him where he tries to force it, ch- you know what I mean? He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's every white society that must bend to <laughs> the will of Brock Hudson. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, they're just extraordinary films. Just from an aesthetic point of view, Sure. Uh, every pressed flannel with a popped collar is like uh, unbelievable to behold. You can watch the whole film and just watch his hair. Mm. Uh, it's extraordinary, really. It's I mean, as an aesthetic object, that that those Cirque films, the classic ones, are are really uh, magnificent. Yeah, what does he bring? I mean, he is uh, again, he's he's in very capable hands with Cirque, and. I mean, they're all doing great work under his leadership, right? Because you can watch the film a hundred times and not get bored. It's really wonderful. There's a lot going on in there. They're so repeatable and delicious and weird and funny. But they are they're deeply silly but very romantic as well. And you you can kind of be you can kind of fall under their spell. Yeah. Um very easily and, and that go a lot of that has to do with just his complete magnetism. Yeah. You know? I do think that the gay man hiding in plain sight is his secret weapon. Sure. Just because he has such a warmth and gentleness with his co stars. Um <laughs> Ileana said something. Ileana Douglas who I have comment on certain of the films just because she's so sharp in her analysis. Um, and I wanted to kind of have some of these films read through uh, a woman's eyes. She said that uh, he's like, oh, Rock Hudson and then and, and that film is like every gay guy I knew in the East Village in the 90s. You know what I mean? Like the flannel wearing, yeah. gentle giants, very like, he's your gay best friend. Yeah, but, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Jane Wyman can't help but fall into his arms. Actually, I'm starting to actually get. I'm I'm conflating magnificent obsession with all the hell that heaven allows. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, my yeah, mind just it's fine. my mind just goes to the flannels. <laughs> yeah, and that gorgeous scene by the big window. Yeah, magnificent obsession is the the lunier of yeah, the it's, two. It's <laughs> out there. The uh... the plot yeah. is ridiculous, but he's yeah, it's it it's very interesting because that that is the one where you know he starts out as the cad. Yeah. And love completely transforms him. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that he could go to medical school, learn a secret brain operation that would restore Jane Wyman's sight later in life after she's fallen in love with him while she's been blind because a car hit her when he was chasing her. I mean, like, you can't even... Hey, that's romance for you. (laughs) I mean, like, (laughs) the plot of that one is so ludicrous. Maybe it's because he is just this big, simple, mm. handsome doofus that he gets away with it. Because who else could pull that off? Yeah, that's a key point, I think. And one of the impressions I got through watching the, the film and listening to him and listening to people comment on him was that there wasn't really, he was quite self-aware about his acting ability. Or he didn't seem to be, I mean, it was, it was sort of vulnerable in other areas, which is more about his sexuality and Hollywood and all that. But he didn't really sort of question... Like in um, the the 
the Paul Newman documentary, the one that Ethan Hawke made, that whole thing, six, seven episodes, is all about Paul Newman, you know, thinking he's a crap actor, you know what I mean? And, and But here, like, Hudson doesn't have that, that, that you know, that, that sense of anxiety about his performances, you know? You know, he, I, I believe he may have, deep down, harbored them, and but I don't know if he ever articulated them. I mean, you have Piper Laurie earlier saying, you know, oh, he was a nervous wreck before he had to perform for the studio. Sure. The little theatrical talent presentation they did, you know, but this was before he really had his chops. Magnificent Obsession, the stakes were quite high for him at that moment, right? I mean, it is his big break. It's his first full-on romantic lead opposite a very famous actress who's quite older. I mean, the pairing has always confounded me, but it weirdly worked for everybody at the time. Yeah, no, I, I feel like there is an innocent confidence to him that allows him to let go and trust the director, and they just brought something out in him. Yeah. Because, I mean, he's always kind of talked about as like, he's a great movie star, he's not a great actor, right? But I, I feel like that does him a disservice. I mean, he is maybe not the most complex, you know, he's not the dark and stormy. There's nothing tortured about him. No. But when I think you you learn about his inner struggles and his angst it all comes from you know his 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 desire to be taken seriously as an actor mm. he applied himself he was a professional yeah 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 he yeah. really did i mean that's the thing he wasn't a method acting new york rebel he was a studio system contract player rolled up his sleeves went to work punched the clock every day and just did his job and he wanted to do it as best as he could and by all accounts you know he was that well-regarded professional sure. guy on set. I think that's it, why he did, pays off. It, do you think that's why he didn't get on with James Dean? That he saw something oh. that, that it was like, you know, I mean, maybe it was just a lot of reasons. He, he just got knocked back by James Dean. But, but yeah. um, I think there may be something about that. Here's this raw kid who's doing things that I can't even think of doing. You know, in, in a sort of acting sense. Oh, completely. I mean, that that is one of the the great conflict points that just plays out on screen mm. in giant i mean it just pays dividends doesn't it i mean because the characters are exactly matched in that way right the yeah. upstart the old established old guard so yeah i mean and then all the sexuality games that are going on like you know did he hit on him did he not they're basically fighting over their best girlfriend liz taylor's attentions but rock even at that at young age, and he's barely 30 when he does, Giant is kind of a square. Mm -hmm. I and mean, that's the thing. He's conservative, he's old school, and he is has now become the standard bearer for like studio blockbuster movie acting, too, which was completely counter to what was happening as the 60s progressed, mm -hmm. right? So... Just to go back to the point you made about the the leading actresses he played against, and this, and I I think this happens quite a lot where there's he's almost kind of childlike next to them, and I think definitely in Giant, his performance is almost kind of like as as, as a little boy who wants to control everything. There's something Freudian going going there, and then Liz Taylor seems a hell of a lot more mature in that in that role, and I just wondered whether again whether that's something that's conscious rather than subconscious in the way that he sort of has to marry his own persona with these roles that that he's given or he takes, you know? Yeah, uh, it's a very hard question to answer. Yeah. You know, we don't know what really went on in his head. Of course. Um, but what you see 
time and time again. I mean, yeah, and it's like with the directors, he's at his best chemistry-wise with, you know, when he really clicks with his leading lady. I mean, it's just extraordinary. I mean, in a way, you know, maybe he isn't a great actor. He's Maybe he's just the greatest natural that ever came along because there's so much about him when he's at his peak. Everyone we talk to, like mm-hmm. like Ken Jilson, his pal from Laguna, who's watching Pillow Talk, going like, oh, it's like he's not even acting. That's so him, you know, <laughs> just sitting there chain smoking. And it's kind of true. Like, he, yeah. like, now we've come, so we've, Fast forwarded to Pillow Talk, but you know the relationship with Doris Day was really special, yeah. and it just it ignites. You know they're so good together, and by all accounts, Jane Wyman, back to Magnificent Obsession and all that heaven allows, just was a really generous, welcoming, you know, elder, bringing him up, giving him this big chance, mm. and he had you know absolutely loved working. They loved working together. They sure. just had a great working relationship. And, you know, when it goes wrong, you can tell. Mm. I mean, him and Jennifer Jones in uh, the remake of Farewell to a Heart. Oh, God, terrible. It's one of the, that is an awful film. I'd like, like to watch it. Excruciating. Oh, God. <laughs> She's co- totally miscast. Of course, she is the director's wife, but producer's wife, right? It's just, mm. it's ludicrous. I mean, she, she was never one of my favorites anyway. But, like, apology to the Jennifer Jones fans out there, but it's a terrible mismatch. Yeah. You know, and then... He strikes comedy gold again when he's paired with Gina Lola Brigida, but then it completely deflates when he has to act opposite Leslie Caron mm. in an absurd, you know, warmed-over sex comedy called uh, A Very Special Favor, which is just taking the Doris Day formula and wringing it out till it's just bone dry, and it's just a terrible movie. The central strand of the of the film is obviously though the relationship between his films and then the the life on the outside and you know there's so much uh discussion and so much kind of footage and 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 interviews that you've got of this again like it like you would say a gay subculture that that's going on what's incredible to me is how not subcultural it is it seems it's like you know within hollywood it's completely recognized and open within a certain circle that the people are having relation men are having relationships and that jobs are uh, happening because because of these relationships from the start he seems completely comfortable with his own sexuality i mean the, the film doesn't sort of dwell too much on on him kind of coming to terms with himself it's like yeah i'm a gay guy i'm in hollywood and this is my gay 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 life you know yeah again i think you know his angst and was all related to his work he wanted to be known as as one of the greats And meanwhile, you know, he's got this personal life that, I mean, at the time, that's the thing. It's it's not just like gay men in Hollywood. Like, the straight actors and actresses were probably totally freaky horn dogs, too. And like, and they're being written about as these prim and proper. I mean, it's the the thing with the magazines. I mean, Mm -hmm. they just painted, and we went through, like, we have great old archive culled from all these fantastic, like, movie line, I think was one of the big ones. And there were just these crazy magazines in the 50s to the 60s. They're about movie stars, but there's nothing about the movies. <laughs> no, no. Magazines, they're all just, they're like kind of some of the things we have today, right? Sure, they're just sure. gossipy and they, you know, it's all about relationships and presenting these. And it's not until they get really tabloidy that they start digging for like, you know, Liz Taylor and her pills and, yeah, yeah. and all these tragedies and divorces and affairs and things. But 
Yeah, it's just this bizarre constructed world. I'm, how was he never outed, though? It's uh, really, I mean, it's, how, it's you a think real about? mystery to me. I mean, there's a famous story we tell in the film that, you know, Confidential Magazine had the goods. Yeah. Henry Wilson throws Tab Hunter under the bus and says, actually, it was like, it was Tab, take Tab Hunter and Rory Calhoun and keep Rock Hudson out of it. So they published the Tab Hunter story that, mm. you know, some years prior he had been busted at a, quote, all-male pajama party. You know, so they kind of try to out-tab Hunter, and then he slips him a file on Rory Calhoun, who apparently was a is an ex-convict. Like, who cares? But it was a big deal at the time. So he, you know, Henry throws dirt at other actors to keep, keep it off rock. But uh, the author of the book, Mark Griffin, who he worked with, said he did, he, he you know, he, he felt like there was a lot more blackmail that was kind of going on. Um, and then there was a bit of that, that was always running into the surface for a lot of these people. And a lot of the studios and the management would employ their own sort of heavies to counter blackmail or to rough people up or break a leg or push someone in front of a car just to like, there was a lot of maintenance going on behind the scenes. Mm. 50s, 60s, gay and lesbian people were, had to live under the radar. I mean, it's the classic, you know, the lavender scare. They're illegal, we're, you know, the bars are raided. Names are published in papers. I mean, they were hunted. It was it was a touchy time, but I mean, there was still just people living their lives, yeah. and especially in somewhere like Hollywood, with the wealth and privilege that fame allowed, he could kind of get away with whatever. Going into the sixties, then he takes he takes seconds. I mean, I mean, I was just fascinating. I wonder how he came to the decision to take that movie and how the producer let him because. You know, on the one hand, it's a, it's a horror movie. You know, completely against casting against type. But it, the script really is does seem to feed into a question of his own identity. I mean, Ileana Douglas kind of it's him dis- decoding himself on screen. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that does come after a run of really dire sex comedies in which they're just trying to keep the Doris Day Rock Hudson formula going, mm. and it's just not working. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what a great film. I mean, it, it, Frankenheimer, I think, even said it went from failure to cult status yeah. without ever being a success. Um, <laughs> it was a bomb uh, at the time. Yeah. But, yeah, it's 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 extraordinary. I mean, it's based on a novel, so it's not like they wrote it to the Rock Hudson persona. It just it was uncanny. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a lot of these um, instances where you just find weird parallels uh, within the work to people's lives. But this seems extreme, you yeah. know, right? The yeah. story of this shady organization who can fake your death. Your old, this old grumpy man who's bored of his life. They I tell fake, you, it's a rock. They <laughs> fake his death, plastic surgery, bandages come off. And you're, yeah, exactly. He's Rock Hudson. Completely put him in a new life. You're a painter. You live by the beach. There's this beautiful woman that's going to walk down the beach, have an affair with her, and everything will be fine. But just don't talk about it. Keep your secret. You have to keep the secret. Um, and then he realizes there are others like him yeah. all around all him. All men who have got this yeah. secret. Yeah. <laughs> got this secret. And, of course, in the film, he, he wants his old life back. That's a great scene that you use in the film, though, because it shows, I think, just in his reactions, this, there is a subtlety to his acting there that I don't think you possibly see anywhere else, you know? Nowhere else. It's really, really interesting. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah, the metaphors of the secret life, but then there's the, the constructed identity that is impossible to deconstruct without destroying yourself completely. 
which is what happens. You can't go back. I mean, Rock Hudson in life, like, why would you want to go back? You're Rock Hudson. Who cares about Roy Fitzgerald anymore, right? Who would want to be him? But it is quite staggering uh, the way he's able to pour himself into it in a way. And it's funny because you actually think in real life, does he possibly have those depths of feelings to mine? You know, is he that bothered by the double life and by hide quote hiding, you know, and having to live the secret? It's really strange. I mean, the more we dug into it, you just think he seemed quite content. And it wasn't like they were yearning for it. I was going to say, he doesn't seem to be really... Right up until very, you know, to the very, very end, he didn't want to be exposed in that way. No interest. Yep. What has he got to gain, you know? Nothing. You have your career, you have your image, you have your reputation. And that's just the thing. I mean, he was marketed to women, like Ileana Douglas says, right? Like he was the perfect man for women of that era, right? The frustrated housewife yearning for comfort and understanding with these unfeeling nine-to-fiver husbands at home. Rock was the dream. He was everyone's romantic fantasy, and it just fueled an entire career. And meanwhile, he's having as much fun as he possibly can. Yeah. So. Seriously, on either side of that, like, why rock the boat? Yeah. When you've got this young generation kind of coming up below you going, come on, come out of the closet. You can make a difference how people perceive gay people. But it was it was too early. They were too afraid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then this, that was, we're, that's like the late 70s. We're not even talking about the, yeah. the 80s when we have to contend with AIDS yet. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing I wanted to ask, though, on, on, from a structural standpoint and also from a sort of documentary research standpoint, in the second half of the film in particular, you use clips just to highlight how much in the films there were these double entendres going on. You know, like the, the scene with two men in the bed and then other conversations he's having in the comedies that kind of allude to sexuality. But looking back from it now, it looks so on the nose. But I mean, you must have been like, I can't believe that these things were so clear, you know. Yeah, some some were very much so. I mean, again, I, I have to double down on the Mark Rappaport Rock Hudson's home movies, uh, it was a real uh, roadmap for us because right. really that is a film stitched together entirely out of clips. Sure. That very much is about the hidden gay life within the movies and how you can kind of read his life that way. You can't do the Rock Hudson story and not go there. <laughs> so w- thank you, Mark Rappaport. We had to kind of, we leaned into, you know, some of the similar sort of ideas because they're just too delightful not to talk about, you know, especially when you're in like Pillow Talk where gay Roy Fitzgerald performing Rock Hudson for the world, straight actor in a movie about a straight man pretending to be a gay man (laughs) to get a woman (laughs) in bed. It just goes like, wait, 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 what? You know, what now? How did they even think that that would work? It does beautifully, but, but the levels of deception are constantly swirling around. But, you know, there's there's the double entendres and there's the wink-wink, nudge-nudge kind of point of view we can take. But then there's just so much stuff that it's like when you make that many movies, there'll be a little bit of everybody's lives reflected in it somewhere, you know, when he's divorcing Phyllis. There's a great shouting match between him and one of his co-stars about divorce. And so there's all, there's like the sham marriage is a plot in one of his movies. And there was just like little bits of everything. The one little advancement of that idea, which 
we had fun with. Some people think maybe it's a little too cheeky for words, but I enjoyed it. It was just like I wanted to kind of start cutting across the films and let him kind of like Rock Hudson in one movie kind of flirt with Rod Taylor in another movie and create like there's a few little bits where we do that, you know, where we actually kind of almost imagine like what it could be like. What it could have been like. If he was able to be a gay guy on screen and contemplate gay marriage or, you know. Well, it does that thing of of the the queer rereading of something that was probably intended as straight, but there is a a symbolism of queerness there. Yeah, yeah, it's all all over the place. And there's stuff that, you know, and they're just ironic or just eerie little echoes, you know, Mm -hmm. like he's in that crazy film with Burl Ives, The Spiral Road, um, where he's a doctor, uh, you know, at leper, a leper colony, but it's really kind of about plague and disease and diagnosis, yeah. and it's a very dry, long, boring film. But there's just some just unbelievable little moments where, you know, especially when you're talking about a man who would eventually be in denial about his own yeah. fatal disease, uh, is talking about his instinct to diagnose a fatal illness. I was thinking back to the moment that it was on the news. I mean, I was probably 10, 12 years old, but I remember how big it was. And I'm just thinking, you know, that there isn't anything equivalent, I think, now in terms of something that would get that amount of, you know, shock and publicity because people still didn't know, really. And he, as you as you sort of outline in the film, he didn't want he didn't want people to know he was gay, never mind had AIDS, yeah. right up until the to, to the last moment. And was obviously he was caught in this hypocrisy of the Republican ideology about you know reagan reagan's uh approach to the arrival of 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 aids and and being a friend of nancy reagan of course that he was really in a horrible position you know with regards to to that but also you know dying of this disease yeah and he was completely in denial about it very late into it you know and but again it was 80 80 45 people people really forget how crazy it was and how much uh how little information there was available to people um how just shocking and terrifying the that that moment was and the enormous amount of stigma put upon the gay the gay community you know iv drug users everybody it was just the poor you know unwashed masses right it was just everyone was like down upon and it was the scourge you know was coming and and it was the gay cancer and uh and it fit the evangelical narrative as well. The evangelical narrative and all of it. And the Reagan administration did absolutely nothing uh, and waited just far too long to deal with it. But uh, yeah, I, I just think like the horror of the moment is lost on people today that didn't really live through it. I mean, Tom Hanks announcing that he had COVID. I mean, it doesn't come close. <laughs> you know what I'm sorry? Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, 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 yeah. Like the, the terror of that was in the air was... Um, was so palpable. I mean, I was quite young too, but it just informed everything. Mm. Um, he just couldn't admit that he had it. Even diagnosing it was difficult and mm. weird at the time. Like we didn't quite have the tests yet. And ho- on hospitals didn't want to know. Hospitals you know? didn't want to know. Uh, there were very early studies, of course, in France, which lead him to go to France for, you know, these drug trials, you know, on the advice of his doctors. But he turns around and goes right back to work because he just thinks, well, got a few shots. I feel okay now. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they must have cured it. Let's keep going, you know? Yeah. yeah. And he just deteriorated within a year. It was horrible. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And do you think then that, that post his death, he actually 
provoked quite a lot of interest and support for research and, and you know, foundations and money raising. Elizabeth Taylor was sort of key to that as well. But I wondered whether you think he's got a kind of ambivalent sort of status in the LGBTQ community in terms of, you know, he never wanted to acknowledge it publicly because he wanted his career and all of that kind of stuff. But but yet he does occupy this kind of pivotal position within the sort of struggle for AIDS, I think. I think it's interesting. I think it's it's where you sit within it. You know, I like Bill Misenheimer, who was the founder of the AIDS Project LA, who was in the film. He's a witness to that moment and explains just how crucial the announce, like the knowledge that Rock Hudson had AIDS, the admission of it that like the Rock Hudson effect was real. And, you know, this is a man who's running an organization that's helping people in the local community. Yes, there was increased funding for uh, AIDS research, but it also helped local organizations, like local service organizations, like just actual money to buy food and medicine and to provide care to people in the community because it was really localized, you know, um, and they needed the support. They were drowning, you know, and, um, you know, then he was involved with Elizabeth Taylor and some of these early fundraisers. And for example, like the Commitment to Life fundraiser in Los Angeles that was planned before the announcement, when the announcement happened, they had to move the event to a bigger venue because the demand for tickets just skyrocketed and more people flooded in and more celebrities joined the call and more money started flooding in. But it was really crucial, those early stages. You know, so it's not even like him. It's like the Rock Hudson effect. I mean, we can't even give it to him as like, you know, something, quote, he did. Like, we'll never know how intentional his announcement was. You know, he he may have been absent from it altogether. Sure. It's really impossible to know. If there's a million different stories about how conscious he was within the moment. Did he approve the press release? Did he even write the announcement that Burt Lancaster reads at the event? Maybe not. Maybe Mark Miller did it, his secretary. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like he was just so far gone and in such a state, no one can be 100% sure. But what's 100% sure, what we're sure about is what happened because that's there's no denying that it had a huge effect. You know, then I talked to a friend, for example, who was one of the founding members of ACT UP. And, you know, I just was casual, and he's kind of involved in media and film, and I had thought, well, would you want to be interviewed? Like, what do you think of Rock Hudson? He says, I don't think about Rock Hudson. He didn't do shit for us. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, you go a few years later, and the, the battle is still raging. Sure. You know, how much good did it do? He didn't, and what Bill does say, Bill Misenheimer in the film does say, he didn't save anybody. Everybody died. But it started to give hope, and it helped the conversation reach a national level that uh, was really needed at the time. So it's just it's such a simple, small pivot, but it was absolutely crucial uh, because no one else, and think what happened on the other side of that. Like no one, it, all of a sudden 25 actors didn't leap out of the closet. We're still there today. What actor who has gotten to that level just goes, hey, I'm gay. Nobody of that like romantic lead who's carrying big movies blockbuster champion, you know. How many are in the closet now today? I bet there's a few. I bet there's a few. I keep racking my brain doing these interviews. People are like, who else is there? Is there an equivalent, you know? And I can't find one because, yeah, would he have kept his secret till the end? Probably, Mm. you know. Uh, And then, of course, then that just 
completely becomes the legacy and what people remember as time goes on, people have kind of forgotten about him. You know, he's not James Dean. He's not Marilyn Monroe. You know, they died young, stay pretty, right? They're the icons of the 50s. You know, James Dean made three movies. Rock Hudson made 68 movies <laughs> or something. It's around there and like TV shows and all this stuff. And uh, yeah, the that legacy has kind of faded a little bit. I mean, not for obviously the movie geeks like us, but... Um, well, it's a really engagingly made film and I think it, it will appeal to, you know... Hollywood, old old Hollywood lovers, aficionados. But I think, you know, there really is a sort of interesting question posed about, you know, the history of, of Rock Hudson to the LGBTQ community through, through Hollywood. So uh, congratulations on the film and thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Great talking to you. Why, Miss Marl? I was expecting Mr. Perrault. Mr. Perrault is unavailable at this time. However, if you'd rather wait until he's free. Oh, no, no. Uh, you'll do just fine. Uh, please come in. It's just that uh, it's a little embarrassing. Mr. Allen, I'm a decorator, you're a client. I'm here because you are paying for my professional services. Now, what style did you have in mind? Uh, nothing in particular. Uh, I'm leaving that entirely up to you. Mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, here, uh, this is where I do my work. <laughs> Uh, living room. Uh, over here is a uh, yeah, kitchen, a uh, dining room uh, over there. And up here? The bedroom. And these? Light switches. Uh, 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 just switches. Aren't they rather inconvenient? Why, no. Uh, the man that lived here before me had very long arms. Uh, uh, over here... Uh, Mr. Allen, if I'm going to redo the apartment, I have to know what everything is for. Ah, uh, now, this is the fireplace. Uh, but I'd like to see what the other switch does. It's just a light switch. I wouldn't pay attention to it. Allen, please. Why redecorate? It's so functional for your purposes. So thanks so much to Stephen for giving us all that time to discuss uh, his film. And also thanks to Chris Lawrence and NBC Universal for allowing us to use their space and for helping to organize the, the interview. So Neil, what did you make of the movie? Oh, it really made me think. Like it really sort of provoked thought in ways that were really interesting both in terms of the the story um of rock hudson but also kind of the the storytelling that, that that stephen was deploying there's a lot in it and i think that there's a lot that it really sort of tries to bring to attention you know you mentioned before in terms of the the kind of the context around his illness with aids and then kind of dying from it and his relationship to ronald and nancy reagan and the reagan administration as a republican and as a still a very kind of high profile public figure and how he was betrayed essentially in terms of his investment in that party by by Reagan who was you know a brutal foe to the to the gay community in uh, in the 1980s you know I think it was just I thought it was really 
really sensitively handled and I thought that you know I thought your point you made about it being a kind of queer documentary you know, in terms of the the filmmaking I think is really spot on you certainly feel like there is a really sympathetic but not in a not in a naive sense you know that there is a there is a real kind of understanding mm. of, of what what that meant for for the gay community uh, and and for Rock Hudson as a uh, as as a gay man with AIDS at that time I thought it was really interesting actually like to be reminded of the footage of the early days of the AIDS crisis and how similar it was to the early days of COVID, the timing wise, in terms of just the kind of the constant, wow, yeah. the constant misinformation, the constant like contradictory proclamations on the news. And that was at a time when what was on the news was was sacrosanct. You know, it was like the daily papers and the and the daily news were which are taken as gospel, like and and how unsure anyone was about what was actually happening and how they were kind of happy to just be really cruel and say, you know, some of the stuff they said I thought was really interesting. Formally, though, there were some really interesting things it did. One, there was, it did this thing mm-hmm. where at the, which I think is, it's, it's hard to get right. And I'm not sure the, the film did, but there's, there's the moment where the, the phone call that, that Rock Hudson has to the friend, uh, you know, and I say friend because that's how the, the person is described, where kind of setting up a kind of meet. And it comes after sort of talking about, how his life was kind of portrayed kind of very salaciously in the gossip magazines and newspapers in and the columns in Hollywood. And it's hard to kind of represent stuff without it kind of coming across as a little bit salacious and a little bit kind of intrusive. And that was a moment where I thought the film kind of didn't quite transcend its intention. You know, it felt like it was doing that thing that it was kind mm. of critiquing elsewhere. And I don't think that's necessarily a criticism because I think it's it's a very hard thing not to do when you're trying to present the the wealth of material that, that the film is presenting, which is, you know, trying to, it's trying to bring into the light a kind of, like you said, a kind of an underground existence. But I thought just the ways that it did it throughout was with the, the interviews for, with different people and the kind of the, the behind the scenes material was really, it was really fascinating. Um, and yeah, presented a, a kind of whole life lived underneath a kind of public life. And that's interesting because I think what it does is it it's a reminder that most of the people who, who kind of talk in the film knew that Hudson was gay and it was kind of common knowledge in Hollywood, in film circles. But that is sometimes, and I think this is, you know, sort of relates to where we are now in the world. Like there's the idea that that means that everybody knows and that everybody's on the same page about it. And clearly from the reporting, not everybody did know. You know, like the, the world did not know. The world of Hollywood might have known. There's almost, almost like a gated community. And outside of that, which is where his audience was and his arguably his his earnings were, they didn't know, you know. And that's that was a really... I thought the film didn't labour that point explicitly, but it, it became really clear that, yeah, this is... He was from a very different time where you couldn't you couldn't be out in that way and and have that kind of level of success even though on a day-to-day basis with the people around you there was there was knowledge of, of, of who you were and, and that must have been incredibly difficult I think yeah I think but there's some really interesting stuff in there with with regards to Hudson's own relationship to his own sexuality and there's a sort of clash between what he could and couldn't do himself because of the taboos of Hollywood but really what he never really seemed to fight for wanting to to come out at all ever right up until the very end and i sort of talked to Stephen about that in the 
the interview. And it's just interesting because he does have a, a kind of ambivalent position with with regards to the LGBTQ community today. You know what I mean? I think Stephen sort of mentioned that some people think he's great and other people don't, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think it's just, it's just fascinating that that in in Hollywood it, it it reminds me of the of the Me Too thing as well because the whole a lot of people say that about the revelations that took place around Weinstein and 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 others yeah and you know some people are just kind of like well if you don't know you weren't paying attention and and maybe that is the case within the circle of Hollywood itself but the likes of us you know wouldn't know unless we read it in the newspaper do you know what I mean you yeah. I mean you could make you could make assumptions about about certain people and behaviors and stuff like that but until you re- read it no nobody knows and you know you don't know really who's who's gay and who's not and who's having affairs with who it's just all it's all salacious tittle-tattle until it becomes real or confirmed in 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 any, in any given case so it's interesting how nothing much has changed in that in that sense yeah yeah and, and then how how it clearly still feels like it matters to to, to people you know when it does matter i don't want to say it feels like it matters that's that's an unfair thing to say that it, it does still clearly matter and it still affects people um and it's it's very very hard to put yourself back in a place that you never were both in terms of time and your own experience to to imagine what it must have been like to live with that i think it's easy to be like oh x y and z should have this should have been that way but it's like well you have to try and make a, a leap into someone else's subjectivity um, which is what we were talking about at the start of this. And I think the film, yeah, presents so many different aspects to it, which make it complex without being kind of confusing, you know. And I think the complexity of of of, of his life was really, really carefully laid out. Um, there were, like, you, like we said before, there were, there were very few people at that level of Hollywood fame at the time that he was at his height. It's hard to imagine what that would have been like to to live like that. What was great was no one else, no one in the film tried to suggest what that was like you know they just recollected the person that they knew and it felt very intimate and very even when it was clearly something that had not ended well for the people that, that knew him in terms of the relationship they might have wanted you know there was there was no kind of no one was trying to assume they knew what it was like to be rock hudson <laughs> because yeah who could yeah the other thing i wanted to note was just that formally i thought it did a really interesting thing which kind of felt more essayistic and, and you know i think was kind of testament to the 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 intelligence of Stephen as a as a filmmaker, which is that the, the use of his kind of filmography as a you know mm. as text that sort of highlighted the biography. Yeah. It's done sometimes in kind of quite ham fisted ways, but I thought it was really cleverly done and really sort of lent into the idea of kind of auteur theory in terms of an active perspective. You know, living out a life on screen that yeah, that's interesting. Can't live out. You know, just the the wealth of material that that, that could be pulled on to to illustrate what was going on in his life i thought was really 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 deftly done and what was interesting was that i watched it i think the day before the day after i watched celluloid underground the uh eshkan koshbat essay film from iran which also uses seconds amazingly kind of yeah of course two films which really draw on that that film which we've covered on the podcast which is a kind of amazing film in really interesting ways but but both do that thing of using using cinema text to to illustrate sort of biography and history and I just thought this film did it really, really beautifully. The only bugbear was that it was a, it's a huge filmography and there were so many films I was like, I don't know what that is. I'd love to see that. 
and there's no reference to it. And that was, I was like, I think that to go back to what we were saying right at the start, I think that I'd love to see more film history documentaries kind of referencing in on in the frame what those films are because I think that yeah, I really wanted to see more of his work and some of the films that were used in this really interesting way. I was like, wow, I'd love to see that. But because I didn't know it and it was hard to to sort of guess from a few frames what it was, I was left a bit frustrated and I was like, I'd love to be able to spend time if it's available seeing this stuff. And that's not yeah. a, just a criticism of this film, but kind of, you know, if you if if part of the the object of the film is to bring this this cinematic figure into the light in a new way, tell us where we can find more stuff, you know, because there's a lot of it and it's quite hard to find a lot of the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I had a very similar thought, and I wondered actually whether that was a that was a studio decision, mm, maybe, you know, yeah. or rather than a directorial one. You know, it's like that idea of oh, this isn't this isn't meant to be teaching anybody anything. It's like a you know. We just want to reflect back on Rock, Rock Hudson's life, but I, I absolutely. I mean, you know, this is a this is a cinephile's film as much mm. as it is a film about um, you know a figure in the in in sort of in in, in gay history maybe. You know, he's he's doing. I mean, it was one of the things I said at the very end was was sort of it's interesting that I think this is going to play to quite a few different audiences for different reasons, even though. It seems like a fairly, you know, a Rock Hudson documentary on on the tin. It seems fairly straightforward, but there's it is quite big in scope. Actually, I think you know it's it's an ambitious yeah. piece of work in the in the vein that you were talking about earlier, trying to do quite a lot. And you know, for the most part, I think it manages to shape it in a way that it it, it works formally. Yeah, and it and it does that thing of it undermines your perception of the subject, where you know. A lot of people will probably go to it thinking, well, it's just Rock Hudson. He made those movies with Doris Day. What could possibly be the story here? You know, um, but there is a story. Yeah. There's a real story there. Um, and again, a really important, really important figure in film history for for a number of reasons that are not just in terms of screen performance. Fantastic. So that's it for our double header, as it were. I hope everyone has enjoyed that and got a little bit out of it. Um, Neil? We've got a really interesting episode coming up next with Rico Galliano, who is the host of the Movie Podcast. So we're getting another film podcaster on to talk about movies and podcasting and everything in between. Yeah, but it's going to be like celebrity deathmatch for film podcasts. Uh, watch this space. <laughs> yeah. There's only one podcast that will survive. Um, no, I'm sure they'll both survive just fine. Uh, but yeah that's it so thanks very much for your continued support um we 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 hope you've enjoyed the last couple of shows please go over to our patreon and catch the the bonus content we've got over there we will have a, a newsletter coming out at the end of the month or the beginning of the next month depending when you when you get it um but neil good to talk to you looking forward to the next one you too yep this has been fun so this has been the cinematologist podcast thanks for listening 